Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, I am so happy to have uh, my friend who I haven't seen in years, Kevin Nye, here with us at Mission Hills, and he will be with us on Sunday to talk about his new book, uh, Grace Can Lead Us Home. Kevin, welcome. It's so good to be here. So good to be back yeah. here. It's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's weird to see anybody face-to-face, so <laughs> right? uh, much less uh, see a good friend, and so excited about uh, just everything that's happening in your life. Your first book is coming out next month in August? August 9th, yeah. August 9th, and you can get that wherever fine books are sold. Uh, let's start out just by maybe talking a little bit about what you've been up to and kind of the work that you do that led you to writing this book. Sure, yeah, so... Uh, I graduated from Fuller in 2015, 14, 16, one of those years. Uh, and around that time, I also started working in homelessness services uh, in Hollywood specifically. Um, and yeah, so kind of working in that field and bringing all of who I was, trained as a minister, went to seminary to um, you know, this particular crisis that L.A. faces, you know, I eventually realized I wanted like those two worlds to combine <laughs> right. in a way and wanted to bring, you know, my my theological education to the issue and bring everything that I had learned about the issue back to the church. Um, and so ultimately that came to be in the form of wanting to write a book. Uh, kind of having those two things intersect. Yeah. And you tell so many uh, you know, great personal stories of your six years of experience uh, working with people that are experiencing homelessness. And, and that's, I think, a really beautiful part of the book. And the, the title of the book is uh, Grace Can Lead Us Home, A Christian Call to End Homelessness, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like there's a lot wrapped up in that title. Uh, maybe just go into when it came to picking out a title, uh, why that and... Uh, I think it's also maybe something we can talk a little bit down the line about uh, ending homelessness as well as a call to end homelessness. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The title was, uh, it was a really crucial point that that came in because I knew I wanted to write a book. I knew that it was going to talk about best practices for ending homelessness. It was going to be theological. I was going to tell stories, but I didn't have the, the thesis, right? I didn't have what was tying the whole book together that could give it, you know, the bones. Mm. (laughs) And it was at the moment where I thought of the idea of grace being so central. And, and it really came down to, I had been working in homeless services for so long. And as I talk about in the book, we really, we have everything we need. We know what works to end homelessness and largely we're not doing it. Um, And when I started to interrogate the why, why we're not doing that when we know what works, uh, it was just over and over again came down to an ideology issue that ultimately we believe particular myths about homelessness and poverty. uh, And namely, those myths come back to that in some way we think that particular people deserve uh, Mm. to be homeless, to be poor, um, that they are somehow at fault in that uh, and that without them doing some sort of repentance or, you know, forsaking of, you know, whatever it is that's causing it, that, that it's their issue and not our issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see that fully at odds with a Christian belief in grace, right? Yeah. Grace means we don't get what we deserve or, you know, God, God gives us what God gives us, not because we deserve it, but because of who God is. Right. Uh, and so when I, when I thought of that, it was like, oh, this book is about grace and applying grace to the topic of homelessness, but also to all the different intersections of homelessness. Um, and then the title came because, you know, the the classic song, Amazing Grace, um, and there's a line that says, and grace will lead me home. Hmm. Um, and ever since I started working in this field, every time I hear home in the context of theology, whether it's a hymn or a piece of scripture, I, I think about it differently. And so that was how that, that title kind of came to be. Yeah. In, in the introduction, you have, um, you kind of lay out some of the framework and you, you have this line just talking about myths and sort of dispelling some of the myths, just both societally and from a Christian perspective. And you have this line, uh, a big reason 
we miss this is because as Christians, we are prone to understanding homelessness in simple moral terms. A recent poll conducted by the Washington Post and Kaiser Research aimed at discovering different groups' inherent beliefs about poverty found that Christians are more than twice as likely as non-Christians to associate poverty with a lack of effort as opposed to just difficult circumstances. That was pretty wild to me when yeah. I heard that, even um, kind of knowing a little bit of, of that world. And I don't know, could you maybe talk a, a little bit about the dynamics that are at play there from a Christian perspective and what might lead it to be twice as much as someone else? Yeah, it surprised me too. I mean, I, I would have thought that it, they would be comparable and similar, right? That Because it is not just a a Christian problem in terms of believing these myths uh, about homelessness and poverty, but uh, it is present in the church. Um, and when, when I saw that poll that it was, yeah, more than twice as likely, um, I just really started to think about, you know, prosperity theology, prosperity gospel. And, you know, prosperity gospel says if you do, if you follow God, if you believe in Jesus, you'll be blessed with riches, with you know, monetary, tangible things. Hmm. Um, the flip side of that, which prosperity theology doesn't really explicitly say, but it's implied, is that if you don't believe in God, if you don't follow God, then you won't get blessed um, yeah. with riches. So it's sort of the the dark side of the prosperity gospel is if you believe that following God leads to monetary success or comfort, then you will look at somebody who doesn't have that and assume that they mm. don't have faith or enough faith. Um, and that that is such a uh, pernicious myth, especially in the way that uh, churches and faith groups address homelessness. Like a lot of our, I mean, in every major city, there's a gospel rescue mission, right? And they yeah. uh, largely are evangelistic. You know, that they do, they provide food and and shelter a lot of the time, but they also provide or necessitate a lot of programming and attendance of worship services and Bible studies uh, because they see, you know, people experiencing homelessness as a mission field, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is problematic for a lot of reasons. But one of the most uh, obvious ones is that it assumes that people experiencing homelessness aren't already Christian. (laughs) Uh, And surprisingly, I find a lot of faith among people experiencing homelessness Mm. that, you know, outside of a church, uh, the time that I spend at my nonprofit, which is not a religious nonprofit, um, in our kind of group in reach drop in settings is really the time that I'm the most (laughs) around Christians outside of church, I find. Yeah, that's interesting. And you kind of get into a little bit of the idea in your book about saviorism and how that is kind of kind of goes along with the the mission field that if it's maybe um, a Christian nonprofit that is doing something in uh, the realm of homelessness, that there's a little bit of a savior complex that goes into that dynamic. Yeah. Here's the here are the people with the resources and with the gospel here are the poor and needy and we are to take both to them and maybe we can go a little bit later into uh, the problems with the merit-based solutions that you mm-hmm. talk about in your book but just maybe uh, talk a little bit more about um, from a Christian perspective some of the dynamics that go into um, saviorism and the problems that arise with that dynamic because in your book you do a great job of turning that around mm-hmm. and, and having just a, a different perspective that I think is really helpful. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, there, there is the, the approach I'm talking about with rescue missions or, um, the evangelistic approach, right. That we need to bring them the gospel. There are also many who would call that out and say that we shouldn't do that, but who also still come into the work with a savior mindset. And mm-hmm. I say that as somebody who entered this field with, some saviorism too, that I, even as a pretty, you know, progressive, like idealistic person, I, you know, I did not come into this field to evangelize people, but I did come into it with this idea that like, I need to go help these like helpless, poor, sad people. Mm. Um, and really what, what I encountered 
uh, did not match that expectation. That obviously there there are resources that I have that I can lend, and there there is just broadly communally, politically, a a misallocation of resources to some and not to others, which requires something of me. Uh, but the idea that um, I'm coming in as a savior really puts me hierarchically above mm. people who, in my theology, are equal <laughs> yeah. to me, yeah. right? And so figuring out what what service looks like uh, outside of a sort of condescending or paternalistic framework was really was really hard at first and really really important uh, in order for me to do good work at all because uh, people experiencing homelessness are the experts of their experience they are uh, the they should be the driving force of of their lives and of their care and of what needs to happen next hmm. um, and this is outside of any theological framework that's just good social services too. Um, we'll probably talk soon about the housing first approach and, um, things like that. But one of the really dominant ideas in any good service model is that, uh, it's led by the people who are quote unquote being served, that they are, they are the ones driving their care and you are partnering along with them with the resources that you have like at your shared disposal. Mm -hmm. And the, the theological framework that you you offer at the beginning of the book is is seeing the other as the site of your salvation mm-hmm. rather than the other way around. Like you don't come to them as savior, but they are your savior. And that's I thought a really powerful framework that you you begin the book um, by. And I mean, to be perfectly honest, this book is I think incredibly powerful. I think it would be a foundational book for, for anyone to read Christian or non-Christian, uh, because you do offer just solutions and, and the best practices from, uh, years of experience in that field. So with, with or without the theological framework, it's, it's very helpful, but I think you do a great job of, of kind of parsing out, um, those personal dynamics and those personal interactions, whether, that's someone like yourself who's worked professionally or someone who is just encountering someone experiencing homelessness in their everyday life as they're going, you know, um, to eat or when they're going into the grocery store and talking about your, your everyday interactions with, uh, someone experiencing homelessness and also the systemic solutions, the way you do that, I thought was re- really delicate and, and maybe just talk for a minute just about that, how you see that interplay of w- how you see the, the big systemic problems and also the personal interrelational d- d- dynamics at, at play in everyday life. Yeah, I think any, any solutions have to incorporate both because obviously we have, we have a big systemic issue on our hands, like especially related to housing. We do not have enough affordable housing in this country, especially those of us in Los Angeles, we especially do not have enough affordable housing. Um, but also those things take time um, and progress takes time. We all know that moving the needle politically uh, is a long-term progress. But in the meantime, people are in in real danger living on our streets, right? Mm-hmm. That um, I think I mentioned in the book that the, the life expectancy uh, for someone experiencing homelessness in California is, I think... I think it's 40. I think you said 47. Yeah. Compared to, I think it's 82. Um, wow. And, and yeah. so we're talking about like th- a 35-year difference of life expectancy, right? So in many ways, the people experiencing homelessness on our streets cannot afford to wait for us to get the housing market <laughs> right, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so... And and then at the same time, I, I don't want Christians to walk away from my book thinking, okay, like I know how to vote now, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I want, you know, homelessness is an issue that affects a large group of people and it's an issue that affects individual people. And mm-hmm. so our, our approach has to, has to come at it from both ways. Yeah. A line just around this idea that you write in your book is the choices we make on a larger scale, are informed by what we learn at the feet of the poor, where we meet Christ face to face. I thought that was 
a really good summation of, of that idea that it has to be both, that you have to, you have, to have some level of uh, face-to-face interaction and, again, that theological framework of truly seeing the divine in every individual and, and not othering. And yet that's also not the end of the story, and that's also not... Uh, a solution to the problem. That's where, you know, we can get in uh, to maybe talking about uh, some of the best practices. One of the, I think somewhere maybe in the third chapter, uh, you talk about the, maybe the question that you get asked the most. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You you know, you already already know, you already know what question it is. Um, So what do I do when I come across somebody that asks me for money? Yeah. 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 I get asked that so much that I, I wrote a piece about it long before the book and then incorporated a lot of that into the book. Um, I don't think I say it in the book, but in the original piece I wrote, I said, um, if you want to give them money, then do it. And if you don't, don't. Mm. <laughs> and it really, because I think that we put so much weight on eat, all of those interactions, right? And I think in some ways it's it feels unfair right um no other social political issue confronts us in the same way in our like day-to-day yeah. <laughs> activity like you don't you don't walk down the street on your way to work and have like a group of syrian refugees walk up to you and say like what are you doing about us mm. right but with homelessness it is it, it's it's in it's on our way to work it's on every bus. Um, and, and we feel that in every interaction we're expressing or, or failing to express our overall feelings <laughs> about that population or the issue. And, and so in many ways I, I encourage people to kind of take a deep breath, mm-hmm. um, and to just approach it, you know, kind of one situation at a time. But really the best advice that I give is for people to figure out their boundaries and even rehearse those conversations ahead of time, knowing that we have them pretty regularly. We often enter them and are surprised or like caught off guard, like, Oh no, what am I going to say? Um, and really I think it comes down to, you know, knowing what your boundaries are and having, having those established ahead of time Hmm. under what circumstances will you give money and then making sure that those aren't informed by unconscious bias. Right. Um, so we need to make sure and dispel myths around those interactions, like the classic myth that someone's just going to use your, your money to get high. Well, one, the numbers of people who experience homelessness, who use drugs are really over inflated in our imaginations, uh, culturally at the same time, and I say this in the book that I've never met somebody who didn't get high because you didn't give them money, <laughs> right? Like that's not how yeah, it, yeah, yeah. that's not how addiction works. You're you're giving them money or not giving them money is not going to have any effect on their addiction at all. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of other things that can affect. It can affect whether or not they're going to eat that day. It can affect whether or not they're maybe going to get a hotel for a rainy weekend to get out of the elements. Um, so there's a lot of good reasons to give. And I think, um, if you are, if you want to give and you know, you've kind of dispelled those myths and set those boundaries, then I think you should, I have my own boundaries around when I give and when I don't, um, that relate to which neighborhood in LA I'm in because I work in some neighborhoods and I don't in others. And that, you know, I want to make sure that I'm representing my work well in how I operate, um, and also I, I, you know, I, I say if I have cash, I give it, but I'm also a millennial and I almost never carry cash. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't give most of the time. Yeah. Um, so really, yeah, it comes down to boundaries. It comes down to making sure that, you know, what's informing those boundaries isn't based in myth. Um, and then ultimately making sure that however that interaction happens, that you've upheld everyone's dignity in the process. Yeah. Uh, I think honestly, the worst thing that you can do is to pretend like you don't hear or don't see somebody. Hmm. Like I think if you, as long as you avoid doing that, I think you're you're in pretty good shape. Um, but I can tell you, they know. <laughs> they know when you have heard them and are pretending like you're not because I I hear about it. 
Yeah. Um, so upholding dignity, having boundaries, I think is the way to go. And that kind of reminds me, you, you write kind of, I mean, a through line throughout your book is obviously grace and, and belonging in, in the idea of home and even the theological, um, biblical ideas, uh, around home. And I wonder if there's something you could expand on just that idea about being seen, about belonging and that being a part of the conversation around homelessness. Hmm. Yeah. I, there's so many different ways I can go with yeah. that. I think, um, yeah, I'm trying to narrow it down. Exactly. Well, another, maybe another myth that I think you, you write about is the, the myth of service resistance hmm. that, Oh, they just, uh, you know, they don't want, they don't like want help or, you know, they can't, they don't want my help or don't need my help. Or if they wanted to get help, they could get, you know, there's all yeah. kinds of things that are said around the myth of service resistance. But one thing you write is, uh, this idea is a resignation, often a duplicitous one to give neighborhoods and cities justification. They need to make unhousing people disappear, moving them, uh, to another block, another neighborhood, another city. Uh, later in the book, you talk about, uh, not in my backyard, uh, or, or just to jail. Because of our failure to truly see homelessness, we drive people experiencing out of sight. If unhoused people were actually offered desirable services in a preferable area with no barriers, no strings attached by someone with whom they've built rapport and trust, even the most service resistant would take the offer happily. And that kind of goes back to, to what you were saying earlier uh, about uh, those experiencing homelessness being the experts. Um, I don't know if there's anything around that myth of service resistance that you, you'd want to like talk about. Absolutely. Yeah. For one, I want to highlight that that myth is just an offshoot of the same myth I was talking about earlier. Right. That if we say, uh, the, the way that the service resistant myth comes across is, Oh, there are most people just want to be homeless. They Mm -hmm. don't want, to get a job. They don't want to have responsibility like you and me have, you know, they just want to live off the land or they want to live off of charity. Right. Um, and again, that's, that's a a really, it's a slightly less, uh, demeaning way of saying they deserve to be homeless Uh or they, Hmm. they don't deserve our help, uh, because, they could get it if they wanted it. And I mean, anyone who's worked in the system of homelessness and housing knows that that's just not true, that there's not enough housing and not enough help. And there's plenty of people who want it and can't get it or have Mm. to wait a really long time for it. Uh, But on top of that, yeah, this idea of service resistance. um, Yeah. I use the word duplicitous because Um, and this is really what we're seeing in Los Angeles right now. And I don't always get to talk specifically to LA folks. I'm going to use this opportunity, uh, right now, a lot of city council and pretty much everyone running for mayor, uh, is, uh, really advocating for the building of a lot of shelters, a lot of temporary housing. Mm. Uh, and because, there is a law on the books, 4118, um, that makes it illegal to sit, lie, or sleep on any sidewalk. Um, the, it's a long history of how that has been litigated, but right now it's being enforced more than it has been in a long time. Hmm. Uh, we're criminalizing homelessness, and the way that city council is going about it and trying to get out of the lawsuit that actually went to the Supreme Court and said that if there's not enough housing provided that you can't enforce that law. Um, the way that they're getting around that is by building these, these shelters and some of them are nicer than others, but a lot of what's being suggested is to build mass shelters, like giant tent structures and basically offering quote, offering them to unhoused people. Hmm. And if they say no, then, Oh, well you've been offered an opportunity uh, and then hmm. because you said no, you are, quote, service resistant. You don't want help, hmm. which allows us to then criminalize, criminalize the block it. that you're sitting on. And right now it's happening kind of on a corner by corner basis, right? Um, depending on which city council member you have, but also not really. They're all doing it. Um, there's a particular encampment that a neighborhood or a business complains about. They go to that encampment and say, hey, we've got you this many 
beds at this place. It might be one of the new pallet shelters. It might be a project room key Mm. and saying, all right, you guys can all move in right now if you want. And it doesn't matter if that place meets their needs. It doesn't matter how many of them are being offered it at a time or if they're asking them to all scatter to different locations. As long as they're offered something, no matter how good or bad it is, if they turn it down, then they can be ticketed for sleeping on that corner. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's that, happening everywhere right now. Wow. And that's, that's wild. Um, so there was uh, I, I, I'm just like thinking through what you're saying right now. Uh, there was a, an encampment off of an Eagle rock very, very recently yep. in which I think they moved into a similar structure that you're maybe talking about right now. Mm-hmm. And then it's, chain link fenced it's fenced off and then it has i think the representative the city council person for that area sort of like plastered on the side is that something like what you're talking about that's exactly what i'm talking about that was probably the most recent one that i'm aware of so they um these have been more recent um what they're calling pallet shelters which is these sort of like shed like structures that are um really easy to design, really easy to move. And they, they pop them up like a, like a little village of tiny sheds hmm. um, in government-owned parking lots, usually. Um, and people are offered to move into them as temporary shelter. Now, the good thing about them is they're more pandemic safe than a, you know, a, a congregate setting, hmm. right? Like people have their own space, they're breathing their own air. Um, but largely people don't like these. They're, they're not super waterproof when it rains, we found out. There's mm. a lot of flooding that happens. Um, they're smaller than a prison cell. <laughs> uh, and like you mentioned, the way that they're constructing them uh, in, in terms of how they relate to the neighborhood, they, they look like prison camps. Like there are really yeah. high fences that are guarded by a security guard at all times. Like it does not look like an inviting, warm <laughs> place to live. Mm-hmm. And so this is, I think, the third or fourth one, the one you're talking about in Eagle Rock, to be built. And yeah, it was commissioned by Kevin DeLeon, who's you know the city council representative for that area. And as soon as that went up and officially opened, they went to that encampment that's right under the 134 there in yep. Eagle Rock on Figueroa, Figueroa. Yeah. Um, and said we built this place for you take it or leave it but if you leave it you can't stay here because this is now a site that's enforceable under 4118 which means you cannot sit lie or sleep here and if you do we'll we'll ticket you and one ticket leads to a missed court date which leads to an arrest warrant wow so very quick slippery slope and they can throw all your stuff away um and yeah so people were quote unquote offered this thing, but it's an offer under duress. Yeah, that that is I think really educational and and fascinating and I think important for every everyone in LA to to certainly know about. And that's something you you've talked about also in your book and just um just a practice that seems to uh seems to happen in LA Maybe you could talk about, um, you know, you, you mentioned the Echo Park where they just clear encampments. What, what is happening when the city is doing this? Who's making, who's making those decisions? And who are they relying on for um, what they expect those outcomes to be when they do that? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question that gets to the heart of kind of everything that's wrong <laughs> right now. Uh, so Echo Park Lake was an example. And that, again, was the city council member, Mitchell Farrell, um, for CD13, who sort of under the under the guise of the park needs renovations uh, mm-hmm. cleared about 200 unhoused folks who had kind of set up camp there. Um, and the way he went about it was uh, pretty disturbing. He... Uh, so for one, in order to conduct a sweep, you have to give a certain amount of notice, right? And mm. over the weekend before it happened, activists had gotten word that he was going to sweep the park that week. And so he was interviewed. They asked him, hey, is this happening? And he said, 
And he just was completely dodgy about it. He was like, if it does happen, we'll give proper notice. Um, but the way that proper notice came was uh, at around 8 p.m. at night, uh, hundreds of police officers showed up to the park Whoa. and started erecting a fence around the park and giving people 24 hours notice to the vacate police the park. were putting up the fence. Yes. Whoa. Yeah. The police put up the fence. And so basically everyone who was living in the park was, was caged in and they, they put one entrance in and out and made it so that people could only come out and not go back in. Uh, and people had 24 hours to leave. Um, and when the point that you make about, so who is, who are they relying on to like provide services or give options to people? Um, LASA, who's the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, they're a joint power between county and city. Uh, they basically, they receive all of the funding that comes in from HUD, from FEMA, from anyone to address homelessness, and they uh, distribute it to organizations or kind of leverage it themselves. Uh, they, they were really scrambling because I think kind of behind closed doors they were having conversations like, Hopefully, I hope they were saying you shouldn't do this, but when they proceeded with it, as many outreach workers as they could came and tried to connect people to something. And actually, so this happened just over a year ago. On the one-year anniversary, UCLA released a report, a study on what had happened to the people who were displaced because uh, Mitch O'Farrell likes to very much say that this was a really successful housing placement event is what he calls it. Wow, yeah. Um, I like to say it was a displacement event. He likes to call it a placement event. Um, <laughs> and But this UCLA study actually looked at the data on where people ended up. And I think only, or fewer than 10, I think might even be fewer than five people are now in permanent housing of the over 100. Unbelievable. Uh, wow. I think they counted 30 to 50 are in some sort of temporary, like shelter or, you know, interim housing. And the rest, like close to 100, are just missing. We have no idea where they ended up. Oh, that's so sad. And I, I keep thinking of this phrase that you, you write in your book, uh, encampments as sacred community. Yeah. And I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about that as... Uh, an alternative way of, of viewing encampments. Uh, you, you even talk about how uh, within encampments, people people find community. People are able to have uh, some sense of resources and dignity. Uh, not that you mentioned in your book, not that all encampments are healthy or safe environments, but that these things do happen and people do have um, community and that encampments can be seen as sacred community. I wonder if you could... I don't know say something about that yeah i mean echo park taught me that um because echo park was a shining example of that they actually had they they rigged working showers for themselves they had a community kitchen uh where they received donations they uh set stuff out and like and made it so that everyone's dietary restrictions were met uh, all wow. internal <laughs> within the encampment um and that's, yeah, that's kind of a shining example of, of what truly does happen at every encampment, that people take care of each other. Um, we are so prone to seeing encampments as, oh, no, there's multiple <laughs> people now. Like, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. The one tent and, like, the neighborhood guy, Larry, that we all like and say hi to now is a bunch of people. And now we're scared um, when, yeah. when really, like... Larry is safer <laughs> when there are other people there mm. living with him. Um, encampments are not, you know, something that unhoused people do to spite you <laughs> or despite local businesses or to make the city, you know, look bad. Like encampments are a survival mechanism for people who are completely at risk mm. of, of hunger, of staying on the streets, of exposure to the elements of exposure to violence. Uh, unhoused people are way more likely to be the victims of crime than perpetrators of it. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, we need to stop seeing encampments as a blight on the city and see them as, oh, wow, people are 
getting together and being resourceful because our city is not providing them everything they need to mm. live. Yeah. Um, and in, in that way, I, I write that they, we should see them as sacred communities because truly people are finding like sacred and beautiful things like community, like friendship, like mutual aid uh, that honestly a lot of us house folks miss out on (laughs) in the way that we structure and live our lives. Mm. And that's not to glamorize homelessness necessarily as much to just say that we need to, we need to be able to see and celebrate the things that are, are beautiful about those communities um, so that we know how to better fill in the gaps. Right. Um, And there's some great examples of that, of, uh, of organizations that have come alongside encampments and actually moved entire encampments together into a housing mm-hmm. facility and allowed them to be part of the process of uh, naming it, of deciding um, how it should run and you know what it should contain and actually tailoring the housing to the needs of the people that it's mm-hmm. for, right? right? Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If only we could do that. I mean, and I think that's just another powerful aspect of, of your work and what you, what you communicate, I think really well in your book and, and really, uh, humanizing people in a way that is, gives a fuller picture of the story that the way the, our communities talk about encampments, the way our communities and neighborhood councils talk about the homeless in our communities and all the kind of, you know, not in our backyard conversations that, that go on, uh, reframing, and you mentioned this in your book, that language isn't everything, but the way we talk about uh, what is going on and the way we talk about human beings, uh, hopefully our actions can follow suit. And I think just changing the conversation around something like uh, encampments can be really powerful to move us into better action and practices rather than vilifying uh, these individuals based on myths that we have either uh, from where we've come from or, as you mentioned earlier, unconscious bias. There are all of these things that interplay that we don't realize are are operating within our own hearts and minds and within our own communities and the way, the way that we talk about others experiencing homelessness. And really what you do well in your book is talking about all of these intersections uh, of systems that that burden people, that create this problem, this overarching problem that we call homelessness. Yeah. But really, we're talking about all of these variety varieties of intersecting issues around poverty, around racism. Um, you mention in your book, uh, gender and sexuality have an intersection in this, that mm-hmm. the LGBTQ uh, population is disproportionately affected. Yeah. And so there are all these aspects that go into this conversation. And we're, we're really good at just saying homelessness is a problem. But really, there's a variety of different ish, societal issues that play and um, affect people uh, disproportionately. And whenever we change the conversation around how we talk about human beings, we can get a better idea of talking about solutions and best practices. So uh, maybe we can, you mentioned mayor, and you know, we've had uh, the uh, mayoral primaries uh, a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. and we'll have uh, the election in November. So if, if Kevin Nye was, if you, if you weren't moving to Minneapolis, and you were <laughs> you know, on the ballot in November, and you know the best practices, you know, maybe talk for a couple of minutes about uh, best practices. I know you've mentioned some mm-hmm. when it comes to solving homelessness. Uh, you know what? What would you do? Where would you? Where would you start? Uh, there's obviously a, a massive continuum of care that you've mentioned. Uh, there are a variety of different organizations. How do you? How do you pull the levers of government to institute best practices? And where? Where would you start? Yeah, great question. It's mean, a big, big, big question. If I'm elected, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So. I want to go back to something that you were you were getting to, which is that like homelessness is the intersection of so many issues, right? And I saw this. There's this political cartoon that circulates and resurfaces every once in a while. It's of um, a couple politicians standing next to an encampment, 
and saying, gosh, if only homelessness was as simple as solving homelessness. And then above each kind of individual or tent, it says something like drug abuse, uh, mental illness, PTSD, um, discrimination and, and kind of mm. all the same factors that, that you were talking about. And like, I, I resonate with that cartoon to an extent because yes, when we talk about homelessness, we are talking about all of these other things that feed into homelessness at the same time. Those are all every single person in that cartoon, that homelessness is still resolvable with a home. Mm. And and that's something that we have to really hold on to when we talk about homelessness. Is it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is the intersection of so many things, but what everyone has in common is that they don't have a home. And all of those things exist in homes also. People have mental illness in apartments. People use drugs mm. in swanky houses in the Hollywood Hills, probably more no. than people do yeah. on the streets. <laughs> For sure. Uh, people... Uh, have PTSD, people exit foster care in houses, right? Mm. But when we look at where homelessness exists and where it exists more than other places, it's places where housing is not Mm. accessible and or affordable. Uh, I mentioned this in the book that uh, Mississippi has the uh, lowest cost of housing and they also have the lowest rates of homelessness. And Mississippi has a lot of poverty. Mm. Mississippi has a lot of mental illness, a lot of substance use, a lot of all of the things that we associate with homelessness. Mm. But they have low homelessness numbers because they have yeah. affordable housing. You can have mental illness and get the government benefits for it and use that to rent a place. Yeah. Um, now, that doesn't mean just because people are in inside that we don't need to worry about mental health and substance use and all these other issues. Right. Of course. But, uh, all of those things are much more solvable when somebody has a home to go back to, mm-hmm. uh, when somebody is on the streets and in a constant state of fear, anxiety, and trauma, if you have mental illness, it's going to be so much worse <laughs> on the street. Yeah. Uh, if you have an addiction, you are going to turn to that addiction more to soothe yourself for all of the uh, the harm of yeah. living on the street. I think you mentioned somewhere in your book, you know, if you've ever had an injury, ima- imagine, yeah. you know, trying to get back to a certain kind of health if you didn't have a home to return to or something right. like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Re- rehabilitation from anything requires some sort of stability, mm-hmm. um, and so. That, that lends itself to the policy that has become really effective in addressing homelessness where it's actually been utilized, which is called housing first, um, which it goes against the traditional approach, which says that people have to sort of earn their way to housing, what, what I call the merit-based approach in the book, right. where uh, you have to get clean and sober to get into, or you at least have to be currently sober to get into a shelter. Uh, then once you're in the shelter, you have to follow all the rules of the shelter, attending certain things. Sometimes it's Bible studies. Sometimes it's, you know, recovery groups. You have to know your Bible I know, to right? have a house. Exactly. Yeah, gosh. Um, and if you can follow all those rules, then you graduate to interim housing. Maybe you have a roommate. Then you graduate to the next step. And you have to sort of keep proving that you deserve <laughs> each new level until finally mm. you get housed. And people drop out all the time of those because they're not built for success. They're built, uh, to essentially pick and choose who gets and who deserves the help. Right. Hmm. Uh, and it's very easy for then the people who run those places to say, Oh, look, they, they clearly didn't deserve it. They're not one of the good ones. Right. Because they didn't match up or live up to our expectations. Right. Um, in opposition to that, Housing First says, let's get you into a place with your name on a lease, and then let's work on all the other stuff. Let's mm-hmm. provide you a home base so that we can work with you uh, to do whatever it is that you want to improve your life. It assumes that people want to improve their life, which seems uh, so obvious, right? And and again, it comes back to that myth that people just want to be homeless. Like, yeah. like everybody... Everybody wants to improve their lives unless you are 
you know, suicidal, in which case homelessness is a very slow way <laughs> to go about that, right? Uh, un- unless that is your situation, everybody wants to Im- improve their life. Everyone wants tomorrow to be better than today, yeah. right? Uh, and and so assuming that, we give people what they need in order to do that, which again and again comes back to having a safe place to call home. And that again comes back to a more kind of spiritual idea of what home means because mm. home isn't just, you know, four walls, a roof and a door. Home is safety. Home is comfort. Home is stability, right? Yeah. All those things that, you know, are the intangibles around, you know, having a place to be, to mm. exist where you're not, where you're not scared, whether you're, where you're not under threat, where you can be, be safe. Um, so I would do that. Yeah. So when it comes to when it comes to housing first, specifically as as a policy, I think you you say this somewhere in your book that you know the merit based approach doesn't work statistically. We know this uh, from doing it for so many years. In that, actually, these housing first programs where they've been implemented work, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah they do. Like in astronomical percentages, like we're talking like eighty to ninety percent of people retain and stay in housing yeah. and don't return to homelessness. What is the mental barrier? Like, this is another thing I think you say in your book, that solving homelessness, it sounds, it really is as simple as giving people homes. And that sounds really silly and straightforward, that to solve homelessness, you give uh, people a home. Um, what is the mental barrier there might be multiple, right? Preventing us as sort of a, a society and a culture from seeing that as being that simple, that this housing first approach objectively does work. And I guess, why isn't it part of the like cultural zeitgeist that we're talking about, like just housing people? Yeah. Well, I think it's because in our cultural zeitgeist, housing has been commodified, right? Like Mm -hmm. we are, uh, we are fully in a system where renting and purchasing homes is, uh, a huge financial undertaking and is for many people profit generating and for <laughs> a lot hmm. a lot of others uh, you know a a thing that we have to work up to or we uh, you know we live in particular housing that meets whatever our income threshold is hmm. and and is really tied to like our version of how we see ourselves and our success and our effort. Right. Right. Um, it's, it's just fully imbued in a like capitalist and and Protestant work ethic framework. Right. And so that has, that has two main impacts on preventing us from imagining housing first. I think that a lot of people would agree and say like, yeah, of course that would work, but we can't just give people free homes. Like what about me? Where's (laughs) my free home? I, I did X, Y, and Z not yeah, yeah. Realizing, of course, the you know systemic and historical uh, things that have provided certain people with access to homes and not mm-hmm. other people, right? Right. Um, and how much how much your housing has been subsidized by the government without you even realizing it, right? Mm-hmm. Through tax deductions and through uh, you know the GI Bill, your your grandparents, if they were white, got a great deal right. on a home that then has generational value accumulating that allowed you to get that down payment, et cetera. Um, So I think that's a big piece of it is that we think that we have done something to deserve Mm. our housing that the people who are on the streets have not done. And then on top of that, if you can get around to the idea of housing first and you get around to the idea that, yeah, we should do that. Uh, that's where nimbyism comes in. And we say like, yeah, you should build permanent supportive housing for people and we should give it to them for a percentage of their income, but do it not near me because it's going to mm-hmm. knock down my property value. Right. Right. Yeah. Again. And so again, it's like we, it's that same thing where like, I don't want the value of my home, which because we believe that if we buy into the the housing market that we should be guaranteed exponential increase on our property value for our lifetime, right? That we're somehow entitled to our, if we, if we work hard enough to get in, then 
we should generate income <laughs> without any work, right? Right, um, and that anything that harms that is is offensive <laughs> to us. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, so capitalism, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> A long way of saying that. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, what is? Um, we're kind of getting towards the end of our our time. What What would be another? So, housing first would be. Uh, maybe best practice number one. Would, is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. What, what's another best practice if if we're looking at solving homelessness um, that you write about in the book? Uh, so you mean very like broadly, like yeah, policy? just broadly, like policy wise. Is it um, so you have permanent supportive housing? Is it is it prevention efforts? Is it um, you know putting sort of government subsidies towards um, like homelessness prevention? What what is another best practice that? you you think about policy wise yeah i mean so there's the stuff that we do to address the homelessness that exists right and that's that's housing that's vouchers that's permanent supportive housing um but yeah we do have to stop the inflow and that's Mm. why i do think it is important to talk about all those intersections like mental health like substance use like what are the things that are associated as risk factors of homelessness and again it's so interesting we've we've gotten to the point uh, of understanding homelessness so well that we can actually predict like who is most likely to become homeless hmm. because of all of the risk factors that are associated. And actually there was a pilot project, I want to say it was USC, uh, that actually ran, ran an algorithm that was designed to predict who was most likely to become homeless and actually pull like names and addresses and phone numbers of people that were likely to become homeless in, within five years. Wow. And they called them up and gave them money. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as, as a, a way of testing, like, can we, uh, right. can we interrupt this cycle early before it gets worse and worse and from a fiscal perspective, more and more expensive <laughs> to to treat, to address. Yeah. Um, and we won't see for a while what, what the numbers look like on right. that, but that's an interesting idea. Right? right. And so then we need to look at all of these other, you know, inroads into homelessness and yeah. mental health is one of them. We, we need a serious overhaul of our mental health system in the U S yeah. uh, that could be a whole other, oh, sorry. Yeah. that could be a whole other podcast, right. Mm. Talking about right. that. Uh, we need to completely change the way that we interact with addiction and substance use. Um, and that, that's been well documented in other places. I highly recommend mm-hmm. Michelle Alexander, the new Jim Crow talking about how our criminalization of, of drugs is, is really extremely racist and has led to mm-hmm. mass incarceration. And that, really well intersects with homelessness and then mm. before people and after people are incarcerated, homelessness is often, uh, their only destination. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think really for prevention, we really need to, to look at all of these, these other risk factors and, and do something. And, and frankly, one of them needs to be, uh, wages and income, right. right. What, especially in Los Angeles, what we've, we've seen over the last 30 years is the price of housing shoot up and wages remain completely stagnant. Hmm. Um, and that just can't happen. Uh, wages have to go up or housing has to come down. (laughs) So whether that's, we need a higher minimum wage or we need something like rent control or, or something to, to make those numbers line up. Hmm. Um, I'm sure you get this question all the time. Um, from people that know the work that you do, uh, and you address this in different parts in your book, but for the really earnest Christian who wants to do something, wants to, wants to know, they want to be part of the solution. They just want to know, Hey, Kevin, what do I, what do I do? What, mm-hmm. you know, give me some advice. I'm sure you get this question a lot. Uh, you know, what do you say to someone who comes to you with a question like that? Yeah. I mean, I think you, you need to be in relationship with people who are experiencing homelessness. Again, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like there is, there is the policy, there is the voting, but there's also just on the ground solidarity that Mm. needs to happen. And so if it's an individual person, I think like who are the people that you think of, like that you interact with on your way to work, or maybe they, 
live nearby you in your neighborhood. And for churches especially, uh, I really encourage, like that is that should be considered part of your parish, part of your, uh, I want to say mission, but I don't want to hmm. encourage the, like, the evangelistic yeah, yeah. type of uh, mission. But like the idea that when a new encampment shows up near your church that it sh- you shouldn't go, oh, no, <laughs> look, the- they're here. Uh, but it should be more right. of a posture of, oh, we have new neighbors. Um, mm-hmm. That the same, uh, the same, you know, set of ideas would be triggered by that as would be if a family was moving into the house <laughs> mm-hmm. next to the church. Like yeah. how we relate to them should be the same way that we relate to an unhoused encampment. Um, but we know that the unhoused encampment has more needs and is at more risk. Right. Um, so I think that, uh, really just narrowing it down, like figuring out who are the people who I'm talking about when I talk about homelessness, rather Mm -hmm. than thinking about it as too grand of an issue, like we need to tackle it there, but there are unhoused people within arm's reach Mm -hmm. that, you know, they need a pair of shoes. They need a hygiene kit. They need a meal card, but they also need, someone who knows their name, who is in solidarity with them and who will notice when the police are coming around more often, Mm. who will notice when their tent disappears uh, in the middle of the night, who will, you know, be in such close proximity and relationship to them that their, their destiny matters and is tied up with yours. Right. I think that's, that's what we need from, from Christians and from churches, people who are, who, who love the unhoused people in their neighbor, in their neighborhood so much that they're not going to let bad things happen to them and not going to let, um, cities, businesses, other, other neighbors, uh, treat them like they don't belong. Yeah. Um, and maybe for the final question, that's like maybe a, a beautiful way to end, uh, but I am curious if just of what you would hope that anybody who picks up your book would come away with, if they have, you know, just an overarching, and maybe you just summed it up beautifully there, but is there something that if somebody picks up your book, you think in your mind, uh, I hope if they don't remember anything, I, I, I would love for them to, to take this away from, from what I've written. Yeah. It changes all the time (laughs) because there's just so many new things popping up every day. But I think right now the thing that I really want people to know that doesn't seem like common cultural belief is what we talked about earlier, that that people who are experiencing homelessness want better for themselves. Um, They want housing. They want support. They want a life like any of us want. Um, and I, yeah, I think if we can get that through our minds, then it can really reorient how we understand the issue and, and how we approach it because we've just so thoroughly convinced ourselves that, that they either don't want that or that they don't deserve it. Hmm. Well, thank you so much again for, for being here and for coming on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to uh, the time on Sunday where people can interact with you, ask questions. We'll have kind of an open Q and a format and it should be a really great time. I cannot recommend this book enough. I think it is going to um, be encouraging. It's going to dispel a lot of uh, the myths and really sort of pull at a lot of our uh, unconscious bias and uh, conscious bias for that matter, and really hopefully be, I think, a, a, an ongoing tool and resource for uh, Christians, hopefully churches, and um, I think even you know, people that would consider themselves non-religious as well, because you do offer just a variety of uh, proven strategies from, from your experience and from the research. So uh, thank you for writing this book. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for saying all that. And uh, thank you for listening to the podcast if you made it this far. And uh, join us on Sunday at 1015. And look forward to seeing you next time. All right. Bye.